The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey everyone, welcome to Group Text. My guest today is Lauren Ash, a bonafide certified platinum dyed scene stealer who plays newspaper chief Lexi on the new sitcom, Not Dead Yet. New episodes air Wednesdays at 8.30 on ABC. Lauren is an alum of the prestigious Second City Improv Theater Group in both Chicago and Toronto and has appeared in films like Lars and the Real Girl, Disaster Artist, and Super Fun Night. Lauren's breakout role, however, was as Dina Fox, the no-nonsense, misjudged assistant manager on the NBC comedy Superstore. Along with her cousin, Christy Oxborough, Lauren hosts the award-winning podcast, True Crime and Cocktails, which are two of my most favorite things. Please welcome to Group Text, Lauren Ash. Jesus, that was a long fucking intro. It was a long intro, but you know what? I appreciate it. I appreciate it so much. Did I hit all the all the big ones? Of course. And then some and then some. Yeah, it was amazing. Well, we're going to get to not dead yet in a minute. But first, Second City. So many people came out of Second City, uh, specifically Chicago, like my mother. I mean, the list goes on and on. What led you to being part of the troupe? Because you grew up in Toronto, correct? I grew up in a small town outside of Toronto. And then that's where I moved. Like I turned 18 and I went to the big city, went to Toronto. And I actually, uh, I had a full scholarship to go to theater school, this really great theater school. And I hated it. I absolutely hated the program. I felt like I was losing my joie de vivre. I felt like it was like, you know, there was this real focus on heavy drama and that that was the only relative, you know, relevant acting And so I dropped out of school after three months and I took the subway to the second city in Toronto and signed up for classes. And within less than a year, I was the youngest woman ever hired to the touring company up there. Then I did the main stage up there. And then I moved and did the the main stage in Chicago as well. So it really was an act of resistance. It was it was a pure rebellion that I was like, okay, you don't want to do anything fun and funny here. Well, I'm going to go make that happen somewhere else. So did you know that you are only one of four Canadians to be a part of the Chicago main stage? Yeah, it's wild. It's wild. It's, a pretty, I mean, it's, it's an honor. I mean, it's it, John Candy, Mike Myers, and an amazing woman named Lisa Brooke and me. We're the four. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's an amazing, that's an amazing group to be in for sure. Especially because in Canada, it was SCTV was sort of their incubator. Totally. Huge, Um, a huge, huge, like that's such a cultural thing too. Like SCTV, I know a lot of people in the States obviously also watch it, but up there it's like kids in the hall, SCTV, like those were the things that you're like raised on, you know, like it's to be any, to be even close to any of that world was like a dream for me, for sure. My mother always said that at at her time, being a woman in second city was hard. Yeah. Do you strangely think that it is still harder for women there? Because when you're in a troop, you're fighting for your life continuously. 
Certainly when I was there, uh, it certainly was difficult to be a woman. I mean, I was still in casts where it was four men and two women. It wasn't even three and three. Like, um, and I remember having a director say to me, who's a great, great person, but like, well, there's just not enough roles for women. And I was like, but we write the show. We create the roles. So to suggest that there is a finite amount of roles that a woman can play. And I'm talking, this is like 2008. Like this right. is not, uh, this isn't 60 years ago, you know? So, um, you know, I, I have to assume that it's, it's again, slowly getting better, but certainly when I was there, it was still, I mean, I'm sure again, your mom comes from an era and, and that era then too was so rife with that, that it was like the women in the second city troops could only play the wives or, um, the, the mothers or the whores. That was always like what you heard, what the lore was, is that it was like, those are the only three things a woman could play on that stage, which is obviously preposterous. Um, so yeah, my hope is, is that it's getting better, but certainly when I was there, it was still, there was still a lot of work to be done. How exciting again, cause people don't realize specifically Toronto, that there's a real, very serious comedy community. So here you are, you've dropped out of school and then you're on the stage in Toronto. Did you feel a little vindicated? Did your parent did your parents get at that point what a good decision you actually made, which I'm sure they thought originally was a very bad decision? You know, it was super vindicating for me because for me, I you know, I often talk about like I got a college education. It just wasn't typical. I was right. taking classes and then I was thrown into the touring company where we're performing in small towns in church basements for, you know, drunk <laughs> guys. Um, and it was sink or swim. It was either get laughs or don't. And I learned very quickly, like my, that was my schooling. So when I got to the stage, when I got to the main stage, yeah, I felt like it was like, I did three and a half years on the road. You do, you, you know, you're doing live comedy every night in small towns. Like you learn quick what works and what doesn't. And, uh, it was a huge moment of vindication for me. Then I was making like a full-time paycheck. It wasn't great, but it was still, I could survive. Um, and you know, I've been lucky enough. My mom, was a performer, always wanted to be a performer, but she was kind of, you know, discouraged from going down that route because it wasn't very practical. So she's been uber supportive every step of the way. And I remember when I called her saying, I think I'm going to drop out of school. I thought she was going to say, oh, that's a bet. And she was like, yeah, you seem really depressed. Get out of there. And I was like, oh, I should have called you a month ago. Like, that's it. I was so scared of this phone call. Um, but I will give her the credit that, yeah, she was like, I think that you're destined for greatness. I think that you will get there. I think that you just have to find your path. And luckily I did. You just said you spent three and a half years on the road, which I didn't know. And I grew up on the road. Yeah. That's hard. It's hard. <laughs> That's hard. How at such a young age did you find the strength to grind it out on the road for that long? I mean, a year. Okay. A year and a half doable three years. Yeah. And you can't have I mean, a relationship when you're on the road. Not really. I mean, we weren't, it was definitely not, it wasn't seven nights a week. So the summers were packed the summers we were gone in the rest of the year, you know, we'd be gone. I don't know, on average a, a week, a week and a half a month. So it was a bit of a more livable schedule, but what I really credited to honestly is because we're sketching improv as opposed to stand up. And I know that stand-ups, obviously, they travel in packs too. But when you're performing on stage with the same group of people every night, you get intrinsically bonded in a familial way. My best friend in the world to this day, we met on, we auditioned on the same day. So we toured that whole time together. 
And I think for me, it was really having that family again. And there was people in that family that we also like didn't get along with that well, um, as <laughs> happens with families. Um, but having that dynamic is what I think allowed me anyway to do it for that length of time to like keep going and go back out and sacrifice my you know romantic relationships and all of the above all of the life events that's the thing i think a lot of people forget when you're especially when comics are starting out on the road like you don't go to weddings you don't go to funerals you don't go to birthday parties you don't like it is your life you give all of yourself to this this dream this this you know job that you hope will get you there um, and happily, gladly. But I think people also underestimate the toll that that can take after a huge amount of time because you start to just go, who am I? What is my existence? It's it's just this thing. Um, so had I not had that, uh, especially my best friend, if we had not been doing it together, I don't know I would have lasted that long. Truly. And especially harder for women than men. Totally, totally. Because so, there's also all the expectations, right? Of Well, all the expectations, you have to be, as good as or better than the men to even, I think, be at the same starting line. Yes. And, you know, the men hang out, the men go to bars, the men can do this, the men can go do that. It's much lonelier on the road, I think, for a woman. Yeah, because if you do go out to the bars, as was in our experience, we would end up getting, you know, so much attention, unwanted attention, um, there's also this weird kind of expectation, I think, of comedy women. I think that that a lot of uh, and listen, I'm not speaking about all men, but obviously there is a certain kind of man that becomes very curious, but really wants you to kind of be this puppet that says pithy, witty things and entertains them where that's, of course, not at all what we were wanting to do. We were just wanting to have a drink and wind down after the show. It's it's a very odd, yeah, that the, the guys just don't run into. It's not like the women are lining up going like, say something funny for me. Right. But that's all of our experience is like you, you constantly are having to prove yourself not only to do your job, but then also in the audience that has watched you and wants to engage you. They want to continue for you to be this like play thing. You know what I mean? It's It's a bizarre... It's a really bizarre experience to be in for that long also. Well, good news, bad news. Good news is you have a great sense of humor. Bad news is my mother used to have a lot of um, anxiety when she would have to go to or be invited to dinner parties or this or that because she felt like, you know, her job at those was to be funny. And if she wasn't amusing and funny to the person next to her that they were going to be disappointed. So the bad news is that feeling never goes away. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Aren't you glad you made the decisions you've made? <laughs> awesome. Oh my God. You know what though? Honestly, that's actually like oddly comforting to hear. Not that I wouldn't have, have thought that necessarily, but it's comforting to be reminded that it's like, oh yeah, no, it doesn't go away. It's not, you're not, you're not crazy. Like this is what it is. This is what you signed up for. So yeah. congratulations. She still felt Congrats. that same anxiety at 80. Mm-hmm. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever want to be a stand-up? You know, I, I did and I didn't. I, I think because I started in sketch and improv, I really like the group aspect. I like the team sport element. I've dabbled in stand up a few times and and I I had a good time and and it was a fun challenge because it was different from how we we would work obviously at Second City but but ultimately yeah I think it really and it really speaks to what what like what you were saying like how did you survive that long all those kinds of things I think it it honestly was doing it with other people and that that was really what the deciding factor was for me I just wanted to be around other people and experiencing it 
together on stage rather than by myself. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I've heard that improv described as writing and performing a scene. I'll make sure I get this right. Writing and performing a scene in real time while walking a tightrope blindfolded. Side note, it also sounds a lot like parenting. Um, It's also (laughs) how a lot of actors describe acting. Do you feel a similar, uh, do do you feel that kind of connection? Yeah, I definitely do. But I think for me, it's interesting because in theater school, they kept trying to give us all of these tools to access emotions. So it would be like, think of the worst thing that ever happened to you. And now distill it down into an image so you can conjure tears. And it never worked for me. I was like, I get distracted. I'm like, I don't know what I'm thinking about. Like, why are we reliving trauma for this? Um, But then when I got into the improv world, that opened up so much emotion uh, within me that I didn't know I could even access. Because for me, it was like, I'm living in this moment as this person and I'm speaking as I'm speaking to you right now. We improvise all the time, right? Every That's what conversation and life is. And so for me, it was so much easier to just connect and feel like I was in a character that it opened up uh, for me, uh, my abilities as an actor, I think, in a massive way. And so there's kind of that thrill like you're talking about when you're out on stage and you don't know what you're going to say and you're looking into your scene partner's eyes and going like, well, let's see. But there's something delicious about that sharing that sparkle. And that's translated for me even into my work on television. I'm I am the person who's always improvising, always, you know, throwing stuff. It's just how my brain, I think, works. And again, um, I just think that sometimes that's it's it's it can be very scary to a lot of people. But to me, going out and doing improv, which I know a lot of people hate watching, but pure improv to me, if you are clicking, if it's all clicking together, there's no greater feeling. It, no greater it's, feeling. It's electric. Yeah. How, okay. So you actually pick a lot of characters to play that are very quirky. Yeah. Um, what's your, what's your, I hate the word process. Um, but how do you develop your characters from page to performance? So what's interesting is, so Dina on Superstore, I read that pilot script and I was like, oh, I know her. I've been playing her for years. There's a character that I used to do all through my time at the Second City, which was just this very butch kind of uh, powerful uh, Dina. It's basically the same character. And the way that character came about was we used to do this exercise where we would cut out little classified ads from the back of a newspaper back when those, I think, still existed. I don't even know if they do anymore. But mine that I had drawn from a hat said single woman seeking platonic male friend for hard rock shows, roller coasters and fun. That was literally (laughs) somebody posted that. It was real. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? And so this character just came out like immediately. It told me so much that she was like, she doesn't care about romance. She likes the company of men and she likes things that are a little bit extreme because she likes to feel something. And this this whole character kind of developed to the point that. I had a certain way that I would just kind of walk into a scene and then all of my buddies that I was on stage with, they would all know like, oh, she's playing that character. Um, 
not that we had anything pre-planned, but it was just a character I kept going back to who I just thought was really funny. And so when I read the Superstore script, I was like, this is it. Like, I, I know her. I've played her for years. And uh, I'm Canadian. Typically, we're humble people. I got very cocky. I was calling my reps and I was like, you know, what's happening? Like, this is my part. No one else can play this. And I was lucky that they agreed with me and I did it for six years on TV. So there you go. And how did it be fun to actually visually be able to bring her to life on a TV show yeah. rather than just an improv? You had real hair, real makeup, real costuming. Was that like a great moment where you're like, after all these years, I'm actually getting to be her? Absolutely. It was another one of those, like when I got the main stage in Toronto and it felt like, oh, great. Like I, this was the right choice. It was another one of those kind of benchmarks in your life, you know, when you're like a lamppost where you go like, oh no, all of that work that you did. Now you're literally applying on a network comedy. Like even just getting a job on one of those shows is incredible, right? The fact that it's the fact that I felt like I was creatively collaborating and bringing something that I had created to the table it's the dream. Like they're, they're truly for me is nothing better. People always say like, what's your ultimate dream? What do you ultimately want to do? And I'm like, I want to create content with people I like working with. That's it. And whatever that becomes great. And I was lucky enough on that show and on my show now that I've, I've been in casts that were really lovely and wonderful and, and loved each other. And so it's, it's true. It's living the dream, like without not to sound, you know, maudlin, but it really is. It, it's, it's been, a, it's such a gift. So let's talk about not dead yet. Yeah. So cute. It's it's such a great concept. Right? It's so, I read that pilot script and I was laughing out loud in the beginning. I was tears in my eyes by the end. And I was like, that's what I want to do now. Like I love stuff that feels like it's rooted in heart. I think that it's like so special if you can create something where people get invested and they, they love the characters and they get, you know, Again, in a half hour comedy, hard to do, hard to ride both of those tones. I think the show actually does it really well. And for me, it was really fun to get to play a character that was, again, quirky and and very obviously a character, um, but so different from Dina and getting to wear the designer clothes. I was going to say, she's a rich Nepo baby. A hundred percent. Yeah, she's totally a Nepo baby. And that was one for me, too where I loved that by the end of the pilot script, we knew that there was more to her, that there was other layers, that she's not two-dimensional. She's not just a caricature. There's a reason she is the way she's, she is. And that was ultimately what jumped out to me about making me really interested in, in joining them was that I was like, I love that this is a fully rationalized character, fully, fully realized character. And uh, that was so amazing to get to explore. And there's more coming in the season that hasn't aired yet where you really get to see again, a real look into things that make you actually feel, feel for her, for a character that is inherently quite unlikable, yes. um, which I love. I love that. And I love that there's a female character that doesn't have to be fully likable. I think that's interesting and real. Um, and so that's another, yeah, that was like such a fun, I was so excited that they thought of me. I was like, you, you're coming to me with this, like, I was just so excited that it was like something that was so different because I think it's so easy that it's like to get offered more Dina roles that it's like, that's just, and this was so far from it. It was really exciting for me. I mean, it's so, first of all, how much fun is it wearing all the designer clothes? Let's be shallow for a minute. I spent six years in khaki pants and a polo shirt. Okay. I was like, I was like, 
like, this is amazing. I come into my first fitting and Michelle Cole, who's like phenomenal. She's like, we've got the Dolce and Gabbana. We've got the Gucci. We've got like the, all those different sections. And I was just like, she said, I've never met an actor who's been more excited about fittings. Normally actors kind of grumble a little bit, but you're so, and I was like, I will never complain. You can bring me in for a million fittings, a million, uh, you know, tailoring sessions. Never going to complain. It's uh, it's the best. Okay. Who's been your favorite designer so far? Well, they custom made. So uh, on our team as well as um, an amazing, so many amazingly talented people, but they custom made this houndstooth suit. Mm. And I had, I think this is coming up maybe next week or the week after, but you meet my daughter on the show. Who's a little girl. I think she's about seven or eight and they made her a custom matching outfit. And it's hysterical because it says so much about this character that she's a psycho who would dress her child like her. Right. But it looked so fabulous and so snatched. But the joke was, is that I couldn't sit. I couldn't sit in the skirt. Like it was so tailored and the material was so, I was so in there that we had to get me like one of the old school, like leaning posts that they had for when they were wearing corsets. Um, But it looks so good. I was like, it was worth every bit of discomfort. So obviously you didn't steal that because you can't sit. What have you, what have you tried to snag? Because to me, that would be like, oh, that blazer might be useful. I mean, you're, they're going to notice if you try and take a gown. Hundred percent. You can you can snake. You can ask nicely for a nice Brunello Cuccinelli pair of pants. Yes, a hundred percent. There. Well, listen. They they clean out my trailer pretty quick after I change. You know what I mean? There's someone <laughs> right at the door. Like they know the high ticket items are like you know. Uh, there was a Dolce and Gabbana. 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 My Canadian's coming out. A Dolce and Gabbana dress. That was so fabulous. And I was like, this is going to be my one. I was like, I probably get one if I'm, you know, uh, and then at the last minute they were like, no, we're over budget. The, the D and G dress is going back. So it was like the one thing that I had my eye on, like really angling to get, we didn't even end up using. Um, but there's so many pieces. The thing I love about Michelle is she will, she'll put together like a, a really kind of bold Burberry scarf that has like a huge design with a, a patterned shirt. And you think, how could those possibly work together? It doesn't make any sense, but it looks fabulous. So the scarves were really the thing. I didn't steal any of them, but those were the ones I came closest to. Cause I'm also someone who like, I've never bought a, a like a, like a fashion scarf. Like I'm not a, you know what I mean? Like it's never occurred to me um, to, to invest in scarves. Uh, but we use them in such cool ways on the show that I was like, I'm doing myself a disservice. I got to invest in some nice scarves because they can really like they can elevate something so plain to such a I, cool level. I love that you're that it's helping turn you into a fashion girl. Right. Yeah, it feels right. It's time. If it's time. It's time. You time. Know, at one point you go time to elevate. Exactly. Exactly. It's well. And that was it's funny because. Listen, I'm a, I can be a little bit woo-woo at times, but like that was one of my goals last year, which I know sounds like such a funny thing, but I was like, no more shitty clothes. I was like, no more. I, I, I said that to myself. That was one of my like New Year's resolutions that I was like, you're going to dress the way that you are worth. You're going to exude what you are worth. You're buying nice clothing and you were getting rid of the other crap. And it's so funny because then this came, you know, in the same year where it was like, it felt like all of those themes were like really Life imitating art, imitating life, imitating art, you know? Yeah, I don't cool. want to sound too fashion-y expert, but as you always say, or as my godfather used to say, weep once. So buy the good thing, have it yeah. tailored, you'll have it forever, rather than yeah. buying the crappy and having to replace it constantly. It's all going to come out the same price. Weep once. 
hundred percent. And that's the thing prior to this year. Did I ever hire a tailor? Never this year. I've got what I've, I've got tailors on speed dial. Like I'm just like, it makes the difference. It fits you. Um, also, if your body changes, you can adjust it. You, they, they can, they have that ability. It's a whole new world. And you world. can constantly recreate it. I'm constantly cutting off sleeves, changing yep. waist, putting sleeves on. You can, you can read, you can milk the, something to death until, as my mother used to say, actually, it owes you nothing. <laughs> Perfect. That's exactly what it is. Exactly. <laughs> so I love the fact that in the opening of Not Dead Yet, in the middle of the opening credits, their daily for display phrase like not married yet, not rich yet, not happy yet. Do you have a not blank yet? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I just turned 40 and I've never been married. And I think that's a blessing. I think I've avoided some divorces that probably would have left me destitute, would have left me destitute for sure. I was making more money than all of those men. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one that's like such an interesting, it's so interesting to be in the world the way it is right now uh, with how dating exists and all of the above and certainly in LA and all of the above. It's, it's been a really interesting kind of, it's a, it's a big one. Uh, it's a big, not blank yet. Um, but it's been really fascinating to kind of just sit in it and be like, well, maybe, uh, maybe there's other things. Maybe there's other things that are going to make that one kind of no longer matter. Okay, I'm going to talk about one of our mutual passions. You Wait. and your cousin have a podcast, True Crime and Cocktails. Yes. I am a true crime junkie. So, little quiz, quick, who's your favorite serial killer? Oh, Richard Ramirez. I love the fact that you are the only person who can answer as fast as me and my writing partner. Who's yours? With, without even a thought. Oh, yeah. Of course. Of course. Who's your favorite? I'm an old school. I'm a, I'm a Ted Bundy. Of course. Yeah. I'm an old, I'm an, I'm, I'm an OG because I love the fact that he actually worked on like hotlines helping others. I yeah. love that he actually tried to have real relationships with people while he was out murdering. Yeah. Like he was I, so incredibly smart. So smart, like a true psychopath, you know, yeah. like, like really that smart, really that intelligent, really that charming. Yeah. It's fat. I'm fascinated by the psychology of it all. And I think that that's why Ramirez speaks to me is because he was, he is unlike any other of the serial killers in that he had no MO. He had no pattern. He was, it feels like he was honestly like a demon. He, it feels like there was just something else going on there that for a lot of the other ones, you can kind of see you know, the textbook psychology of it all. But with him, it was like, oh, he just broke the mold. I mean, it's terrifying to me. It, it was almost a, a, an opportunist. It was just yeah. whenever the opportunity presented itself. Exactly. Whenever, it, like, yeah, whenever the idea struck him, he just acted, which is, again, chilling. Yeah, I, I don't want to say weirdos, but aficionados, aficionados like us seem to crawl out of the woodwork, like, unashamed, unashamedly now. We, yeah. like, wear it, like, Almost a, you know, I feel like we need like a, an association and like T-shirts and membership cards. Um, why do you think people have become so openly obsessed with true crime? You know, I've I've read a lot about this, actually, because I think it's I think, again, the psychology of that is fascinating to me, too, that it's like, why is it? Why now? Why all of these things? And I read an article that was talking about because a lot of women specifically love true crime. And oh, Anne Rule is our patron saint. 
hundred percent, hundred percent. And the, the article I was reading that I think there's actually some truth to was talking about how it validates a woman's experience. When, when men grow up, they don't experience what we do from the time we're children, where it's like everything is scary, walking on the other side, hyper-awareness. You know, we're, we're taught as little girls all through our lives, um, and not even taught, but we just experience fear. We experience what that is all the time, whereas men, they don't maybe a couple times in a lifetime. But for us, it's such a part of your experience as a woman that true crime as a genre kind of validates that experience that it's like, there is reason for us to have been scared. Um, and, and now we're going to like almost take it back that it's like, no, see you, you made the world like this for us. So now we're going to educate ourselves about what it is, how, what to look for. And listen, I feel like just, I've always been a huge fan, but since starting the podcast, let me tell you, I'm like, it's never going to be me. It's never going to be me. Now I've got a whole, I've got a whole system whole system for how I run my home, for how I run my life, how I date, all of the above. It's like, it's, uh, no, it's, I think, again, it continues that um, education of, of what our just existence has been, which I thought that there was some truth to that. I think that that's. And I get addicted to trials because I'm like, duh, I know how they pulled this off. Oh. You know, the Murdoch one, I was like, I can't believe that they're having to explain this to people. It's so obvious. So obvious. And what it is for me too, because I'm with you, I love the court stuff, I love the trial stuff. And it's the step before where you watch detectives bungle something. And I'm like, you just made it inadmissible. You've just screwed the case like that. You know what I mean? Like I get so like I'm watching a dateline or whatever. You'll hear me like yelling at the television at home alone. Um, because of, you just tampered, you just tampered with a crime scene. Like it's, it's again, you learn yeah. all the things you messed up the chain of evidence. Yes. You mishandled that. How could you have mishandled the bloody glove? Exactly. <laughs> How is this possible? Um, yeah, which of course then rolls in, but I've become like, we started to do some interesting episodes on the show too, but to that, where I was like, I want to do a profile on Marsha Clark. So I did a whole episode of the show that was like two and a half hours long, just going through her entire life story, her, you know, her career, all of these things, because I find it, I find her story specifically fascinating too. Um, but, but that whole world going through that world as a woman, um, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Oh, and forensic files could watch it all day. Oh, hundred percent. It's all, the, all, all that's on at my home. The low level noise in my house is that, is that shit is either forensic files, dateline. Yeah. yeah. Me and my mom, my mom used to put on, um, true crime or forensic files. And our other big one was a uh, law and order. Of course. Because, and she went on the, on the road, whenever she was on the road or wherever I was on the road, you turn that on and you feel like you're at home no matter where you are. It's so true because it's always on some channel on cable somewhere, no matter what city you're in, what state. It's so true. So um, true. So there's so much, so much true crime on TV. Um, when my mom would be at a party and we were being ignored or we didn't want to talk to anybody, we discuss if we could commit the perfect crime. And we would try and, you know, we would be looking very seriously at each other and talking. And it always made us feel like we were, in an intense conversation. So people would like not bother us. <laughs> I love that so much. Do you think you could pull off the perfect crime? Yeah. <laughs> Me too. I Me honestly too. do. I, and it's, it's like, you can't do it alone. No, nope. I don't think you can do it alone. And, and that's the one place 
where it's like, it's gotta be someone that you trust till the ends of time that you can look into the eyes of someone else and lie for. Yeah. And if you have that person, absolutely. So I've come up with a little, we like playing games. So I've come up with a little game for you. I I am combining your improv skills and your love of true crime. I love I am going to give you three words. Okay. You have to use them to defend your client. It can be anything. It can be a murder, a civil suit, a misdemeanor, a felony. Don't care. And you're, you're defending your client. So the sky's the limit. Okay. Here are your words. Colonel Mustard. Conservatory. Harpsichord. Your Honor. Honorable Judge Rivers, if it pleases the court, I'd like to give you a little bit of backstory about my client, Colonel Mustard, who absolutely was not where the prosecution would have you believe he would be. On the night in question, Mr. Body, of course, did meet a tragic end, but there was absolutely no evidence linking my client to the scene, no evidence linking my client to the city. My client was seen with Professor Plum at a bar in Minneapolis when Mr. Body's body was found in Connecticut. To be 100% honest with you, Your Honor, I don't know why we're here today, okay? My client is a good man. He is a colonel. He's a former army colonel. He plays the harpsichord at retirement parties, at old folks' homes, bar mitzvahs, the whole bit. Upstanding citizen. And that is why, Your Honor, I am asking that you take a hard look at the facts in this case and throw it out, okay? And then maybe we can all go down to the Conservatory of Music, watch a little something, see my client perform the harpsichord, and then you'll know. You'll know that you made the right call today by throwing this out for lack of evidence. I rest my case, Your Honor. You are hilarious. (laughs) That was fantastic. I love that you worked in Professor Plum. (laughs) Listen. (laughs) Mr. Body's body was in Connecticut. He was in Connecticut. Lauren Ash, I absolutely have enjoyed this so much. Thank you so much for joining. Check out the podcast, True Crime and Cocktails. I'm sure it's available everywhere. And uh, check out uh, Not Dead Yet. Please Not Dead Yet, ABC, Wednesdays at 8.30. Lauren, it's been a pleasure. Total pleasure is mine, truly. Thank you so much. This has been just too fun. A Huda Media Production.